Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, I dive into the MENA project with CTO Brandon Case and head of product Steve Pack from Ove One Labs, the team building MENA. We chat about how their journey led them to work on MENA, how MENA has developed since we last did an episode with members of the team, the ZK app's building environment, O1JS, and the philosophy behind it, and what use cases we may see on the horizon, especially as we see ZK move from being more research-centric to builder-centric as an ecosystem. Now, before we kick off, I just want to remind you to check out the ZK Jobs Board. There you can find jobs posted from top teams working in ZK, as well as deeply technical teams like Gnosis, Zama, Alio, and more. If you're looking for a new job opportunity in ZK or in adjacent technologies, be sure to check out the ZK Jobs Board. I've added the link in the show notes. Now, Tanya will share a little bit about this week's sponsor. Near, the OS for an open web, and Polygon, the leading Ethereum Layer 2 scaling solution, are teaming up. Near Foundation and Polygon Labs just announced from NearCon 23 that they will build ZK Wasm, a zero-knowledge ZK prover for Wasm blockchains. With Near's deep Wasm runtime expertise and Polygon Labs' authority in ZK scaling technology, the ZK Wasm prover will help create a more secure, interoperable Web3 ecosystem. Set for a 2024 launch, the ZK Wasm prover also positions Near protocol closer to Ethereum and enables Wasm chains to tap Ethereum liquidity. In the near future, an interrupt layer will allow blockchains, including Layer 1s, EVM Layer 2s, and Wasm chains to share liquidity within a unified ecosystem. Leveraging ZK Wasm Prover, Wasm chains will settle transactions efficiently and securely, unlocking the full potential of zero knowledge for a multi-chain open web future. Stay up to date with the ZK Wasm announcement at near.org. So thanks again, Near. And now, here's our episode. Today, I'm here with Brandon Case, CTO, and Steve Pack, head of product at Ove One Labs. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hi, Anna. Now, before we kick this off, I just want to mention that I'm an advisor to Ove One Labs. It's actually been a couple of years. I get a chance to speak to both of you every two weeks, so it's really fun to have you on the show. And also, ZK Validator is a validator on Mina as well. I feel like on the show, we've actually covered this project a number of times, even like way back when the project was called Coda, we had Isaac and Evan on at the time. We did an episode all about the Mina snarkitecture with Isaac. And two years ago, we did an episode about snaps with Emre and Isaac. I'm going to add links to these in the show notes. Today's episode, I think, is very much taking from that last episode on snaps, which has been rebranded since then to ZK apps and kind of going forward with that. But before we do that, let's get to know both of you. Brandon, let's kick it off with you. You've been at O1 Labs for a really long time. Tell us a little bit about what got you started, how you got into it. Yeah, so what got me started? Two things. Well, maybe three. One, uh, I was really good friends with Evan Shapiro, one of the co-founders of O1 Labs, Mina Foundation, Mina Protocol. And we had built things together in university, so I, I knew that we worked well together. At the time, I was really excited about functional programming, software engineering in general, building engineering teams in a certain way. So when I talked to Evan and, and Izzy, I got really excited about the project. So yeah, so I, I came in working nights and weekends uh, originally in the fall of 2017. And then as soon Whoa. as the... Yeah, long so time So early. Was that, had the company even been founded then? No, no. Oh, uh, wow. No, the company was founded officially in January. Um, okay. So around my birthday, um, <laughs> I remember it. And at the time, we were building a, a JavaScript prototype of Mina, which which we threw wow. out and switched to switched to OCaml. But yeah, in those early days, it was really exciting, really challenging. I personally had severe imposter syndrome. You know, I I had to review Isaac's code, and you know, Izzy, the way that his brain works. It's very mathematical. He was working on a PhD in cryptography, which he which he stopped to work on this project. But even in his software that didn't touch the snarks, 
there was all this like algebraic geometry and, and, and all these weird, like very foreign concepts for me. And I, I had to work really hard to do, you know, what I thought was like a good enough job. Um, wow. And yeah, for many months. So if anyone else is, you know, just getting into ZK, getting into crypto, like starting to work on really challenging projects, I, I would recommend just try and try and work through it, work really hard and then... <laughs> Um, Bite the bullet, accept the imposter syndrome, and just keep going. Just keep going, yeah. Yeah. Um, And yeah, eventually I got got more sort of confident. So anyway, I started as one of the founding engineers, and uh, I did so many different roles throughout the lifetime of the company. And and yeah, and now I'm I'm CTO. That's amazing. And actually, when we met, or when I first started coming on calls with you guys, I always got the impression that you had a bit more of like a DevRel or like a community focused role because you had done those educational videos, you were at the events, evangelizing, helping developers. And so, yeah, I kind of wonder, how did you end up doing that for a period of time? Yeah. So as I said, I started an engineering position, very focused on protocol engineering. All of us were focused on protocol engineering in, in the beginning. And it was really fun, really challenging. We quickly hired a bunch of extremely brilliant protocol engineers. And my role switched initially to like ramping those folks up. Mm-hmm. I felt that was the best way that I could add value to the project. And then once they were ramped up, I, I realized we need to be doing product engineering or we need to think about product yeah, yeah. anyway. So we started looking for product management and, and I started doing more as what you would call product engineering we sort of grew that team. We, we grew a product engineering team. I became an engineering manager. Then we hired an engineering manager who's much better than me at managing engineers. <laughs> and I, it's like, I realized, Brandon, you <laughs> keep creating jobs and then hire. But that's that's the yes. dream, right? You hire, you create the job, and then you hire someone to do it right. instead of you. Right. So you can do another thing. Okay. Exactly. Cool. Yeah. And so DevRel, or this kind of, you can think of it, I, I guess you, you would call it DevRel, but I always really enjoyed and felt passionate about teaching. Mm. I still feel passionate about teaching. Um, and teaching both to like super advanced technical audience, I love that. And I love trying to come up with ways to translate that technical information into a more consumable form for, for beginners, for technical mm. and non-technical beginners. And you may have seen me on YouTube videos about me and people always... <laughs> Like cat, you know they point me out on the <laughs> they street. They know you about that. Yeah, and You're of the course, like the, guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the marketing team really helped helped me like cut that script. I was like going on crazy rants uh, okay. when we were filming those. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I went through that, and I wore many different hats, and yeah. and finally to the hat that I am now currently wearing. Very cool, Steve. Let's move on to you. You joined more recently, and you are head of product. Tell us a little bit about what you were doing before this. Okay, so quick journey, I guess. Started my career, I was a software engineer. So 12 years writing code, mostly in finance, high-frequency trading. Loved it, but always wanted to sort of scratch the entrepreneurial itch. And so after that, I um, started a company. It was funny hearing Brandon talk about university and school friends. So I I started a company with a a mate from high school. I'm Australian, by the way, hence if anyone was wondering about the accent. Mm. And uh, (laughs) yeah, we made Wi-Fi routers that let parents limit screen time for kids. And uh, super successful, super fun, shipped 10,000 units, got onto the shelves of Target, but uh, also learned hardware is hard and grinding out hardware margins is hard. And at, at this time I was living in Silicon Valley and that entrepreneurial experience sort of taught me that as much as I love coding, like to be able to sort of bring a team together and, you know, build a product was was even more exciting uh, to me. And so, you know, when uh, mm. the company wound down, you know, I was set on on product as my, my future career and was fortunate enough to join Cloudflare in the very start of 2018. And yeah, really got to, you know, cut my teeth on like, you know, web to product management and, oh. you know, building building software at fast growing company and learned everything imaginable about the infrastructure of, of the internet and, you know, all that, yeah. all that cool stuff. And like many, I've, I've since learned that this is a common story in Web3. It's like during the day you're, you're doing your day job and during the night you're like, yeah, on crypto Twitter or you're deploying Solidity apps <laughs> or, you're, you know, testing out DeFi things. And, and that was my experience too. I just was drawn to this technology and, I dipped my toe in a few times actually over the years, but always came away sort of feeling like this stuff's really interesting, but it hasn't really got adoption yet. And it hasn't really like proven mm-hmm. the use cases yet. And 
each time I came back, it was like, okay, you know, it's it's getting there. It was like, you know, firstly, Bitcoin is a store of value. And then, okay, like, you know, Ethereum is this global consensus layer where people can deploy smart contracts and then then DeFi, then NFTs, and you know, it just it just kept going. And so at some point I was like, okay, I want my passion to be my my full-time job. And, you know, started looking around and uh, one, you know, the position was available at O1 Labs and I, and I really loved sort of the mission and the differentiating aspects of MENA, which I'm sure we'll dive into. And so, yeah, six months ago, mm-hmm. joined head of product. And I, I guess my hope is to, you know, bring some of those lessons learned from, from Web2 and, and, and being in a sort of hyperscaling company uh, and, and bring them to Web3 and, you know, help us get crypto into the hands of the next billion users. Yeah. Question about working at Cloudflare. Like, didn't mm-hmm. they use ZK actually on some product? Like there was some ZK thing. I remember reading about this years ago. Yeah, it's kind of esoteric. So the, the the actual Cloudflare has a research team that has a lot of crypto research. Yeah, that one you're talking about, I think that was zero knowledge proof that you had a hardware key from a certain set of manufacturers. And I can't remember exactly what that was, whether it was improving the score for bot mitigation, but it was sort of, yeah, Cloudflare's first use of ZK. They also run an Ethereum gateway and an IPFS gateway. So there is, there is, you know, some, some, some crypto folks. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Interesting. Actually, I remember I went to the office in 2019 and I saw that wall of lava lamps to create perfect randomness. Mm -hmm. And I had been doing it, like, I think an episode on VDFs right around then. So I remember like that connection. I always thought, I was always actually hoping that a company like Cloudflare would jump into ZK or something more substantially. Do you think there's still a chance? I realize you're not there anymore, but <laughs> I thought I'd ask. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't have any inside inside info, but, you know, I think Cloudflare, for all of the, like, interesting technology, they are rightly, like, relentless and ruthless at building what customers want. And, you know, like, they'll, you know, take some risks, but... You know, there needs to be, especially as a public company, you know, a pretty high level of conviction to really invest heavily in something. So I don't doubt each each new paper that comes out, each new technology comes out, like it's being looked at, especially by this research team and, you know, prototypes are being built. But, you know, to get that into the hands of, you know, the entire customer base, yeah, there's a few gates to clear there. Mm, makes sense. So you joined Ovon Labs, but I think now would be a really good moment to introduce Mina to the audience. I feel like a lot of folks who are listening, given that, you know, we've done these previous episodes, may be familiar with it. But why don't you just, for those who aren't, just share with us in short form, what is Mina? Yeah, I'll give it a crack. And I'm sure Brandon will uh, follow up. But uh, yeah, Mina's a, a ZK native blockchain. So what does that mean? It means that like any interaction that happens on the blockchain, be it a transfer of Mina, be it um, staking, delegation, and then, you know, in the the upcoming um, smart contract platform, any state change, instead of those things being like executed in a VM, they are represented as a zero knowledge proof. And that's what the MENA validators are doing. They're verifying these proofs incredibly efficiently and also representing that in this famously succinct 22 kilobyte proof with which you're able to prove the entire MENA blockchain. So it's very, you know, it's certainly novel in being mainnet when ZK was, you know, really just, just getting started. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'll talk more about like why, why it's going to be such a solid foundation for ZK apps, but that's how I would uh, describe Mina today. Cool. Brandon? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. The one thing that I would expand on, I suppose, is this succinctness, it's powered by recursive proofs. And this kind of recursive proof power is what makes Mina special. This recursion power is a very important component in the tools that we build, both in MENA and surrounding it. Yeah, because we led into this with why sort of, you know, why MENA, like that was part of when I was looking out there in the crypto world, like why why MENA? There's actually a very compelling reason from my perspective who was wanting to take their passion and make it their full-time role. And, you know, one of those things... Often when we talk about MENA, it's like, okay, the succinctness is cool and it's super cool technology, but what is, you know, what does it enable? And this is one thing that I get so excited about. And I don't, I don't know if it's always obvious, but you, you know, you've heard of Vitalik talking about the, you know, the sci-fi future of Ethereum where it's download a couple of snarks and, and you know, you're on the canonical chain. Like that's MENA today. 
right? And and right. so that's why when I was like getting excited about, okay, what's what's my little piece of the crypto world? Like, where am I going to join in? This idea that you could have a blockchain that you can verify in the browser that you can send proofs to without an API owned by some company, without everything being in the clear. Like Mina is a lot about what Web3 can really be. And so, uh, yeah, it's not just mm. it's not just the coolness of the technology. So you were just saying that it was like, it is that sort of future. That's cool. Sort of moving on from Mina as the underlying infrastructure, I want to start talking a little bit more about ZK apps or what used to be called snaps. And one of the reasons for this is I want to just kind of check to see if I understand them as the same thing. And what are they today? What kind of do you imagine it being? So Brandon, can you tell us a little bit the history of ZK apps and what they are? So ZK apps are uh, what we call dApps on Mina. And yes, they used to be called snaps. What they are, they're in some ways a superset of what you can do with typical dApps. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can do the sorts of things you can do with the apps, but you can also leverage privacy. And the way this works, uh, or, or sort of what is at the core of the smart contract platform, and this idea that execution of the application happens client-side. So execution happens client-side, typically on the user's machine in their web browser. And so private data never leaves their custody. Mm. And then a proof that certifies that such execution happened properly. That's what gets sent to Mina. And that gets recursively composed, recursively folded in, recursively proven into that one tiny Mina succinct proof. So the word sort of snaps or ZK apps both sound like a plural of something, but what it actually is, is like a platform, right? It's like an environment where one can deploy these things. Or do you have a different name for that? Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose okay. nomenclature, and Steve can jump in if you disagree with anything, but like, <laughs> I, I think so, so, sometimes we say like the ZK app platform, okay. um, and then the ZK app is one such instance of an application, kind of similar to how you would say <laughs> in the EVM, I don't know, do, do you say the DApp, a DApp platform? Or, or the or smart contract environment? Yeah, I- <laughs> I think you got it, Brandon, with it's a ZK-enabled smart contract platform, right? We, we build ZK apps using O1.js, which is, you know, we'll talk about that as the SDK. And you, you, you build smart contracts. And then instead of them executing in a like a VM, like in the EVM, you know, they execute in your browser, you generate a proof, and it's that proof that gets settled to the blockchain. Mm. So it's, it's a smart contract platform with the, you know, secret source of, of ZK, meaning privacy. You can choose what inputs are private. Like Brandon said, data stays on the machine. It's really, I think, realizing <laughs> the, the vision of Web3 smart contracts. And there is this confusion, I think, with nomenclature here that I want to contribute to. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think there's a distinction between smart contract and DApp <laughs> that in some ways, I guess, we inherit. So there's the smart contract, which is the actual thing that is running either on the chain in a typical platform or in the user's browser, in in this case, in a zero-knowledge proof. But the actual application that surrounds it has a user interface and is like the full package. So in that sense, like I think what we've built is not just a smart contract platform, but the surrounding package, um, I think, serves this greater purpose of building these applications in a web context. Mm. I want to sort of understand if... Like Steve, what you had said is you can have sort of like an application running and then just does that last proof. But what this makes me think is that there's sort of a separate execution environment that's then Mm -hmm. tied into the MENA blockchain. This is what I want to kind of understand if my thinking is correct there. So like, and what is that environment then? Yeah, let's compare. Maybe we'll compare with sort of what what people know today. Like, so say you build a a, a dApp on Ethereum and you have some React front end, uh, you click a button, that button builds a like an HTTPS request that goes to some centralized gateway that turns it into an Ethereum transaction. Uh, it goes into the mempool on the blockchain, some validator sees it, executes it in the EVM. So there's the execution context in that case, right? Mm-hmm. It's a validator. Uh, and then, you know, there's some state chains that. So that's that's the flow most of us are sort of familiar with. Okay, so what's the, the ZK app version? So again, you might have a React front end, nothing changes. You've got a button, 
right? But now when you click the button, what executes is the proving function. So literally some JavaScript code in the browser. So the browser is the execution environment. All of the inputs to that, oh, wow. the user's you know, private data, whatever else, stayed on their machine, ran this, well, I said JavaScript, but you know, WASM right, code, generates the proof, and it's that proof that then goes to the blockchain to be verified. So it's not executed mm. by the validators, it's just verified by the validators. And that's that's where so many of the so much of the goodness comes from, right? That it's, you know, it, uh, like it, it's it's cheaper. Like it's very cheap to verify a proof compared to like executing. The, the data didn't have to leave the machine. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's fundamentally different. And it's kind of exciting because if you think about it now, you know, in, in every single browser in the world becomes uh, a potential execution client for ZK apps. Is the ZKP or the proof in this case then a proof of validity that what's happened in the browser is what they've said happened in the browser in some way? That's a good question. It, like when you say proof of validity, I think what I'm hearing is validity proof. And that has a kind of specific meaning in the like optimistic and ZK rollup sort of world. Yeah. So, but I would say in a general sense, the answer is yes. Like you are able to prove that this state transition is valid, that, you know, you had knowledge of a private key and, you know, you executed a function faithfully, correctly, nothing was changed. You couldn't possibly have produced this proof of the state transition without, you know, without this knowledge. And so in that sense, yes, you're proving that this state change is valid. Another question though, if your execution environment is your browser, then Mm. is there no global execution environment? Like, is there no shared execution? Well, one one way to think about it is it's the only global execution environment because the execution actually happens on or is capable of happening on sort of the vast array of consumer machines that exist in the world. But the the second part, yeah, there's there's a very interesting relationship with sharing sharing computation, sharing state in applications in, in this platform. And there's a lot of different ways you can do it that solve different problems. It's an interesting challenge in this environment, for sure. Is it something that like you would decide as an app developer how shared it is and where it's shared somehow? Is that sort of what you mean? Yeah. So, for, for example, if you want to share computation, then you can use recursion. You can use recursive proofs. So you can have one user do one sort of step of a game, another user doing the next step of the game, and then a third user that takes the recursive combination of that and sends it to the chain, for example. If you want to share state, you can use Mina. Um, So you can write something to Mina, uh, and then another, you know, later contract can read that information. You know, there's this issue that comes up when you do client-side computation uh, of the data races, or this problem where if if two users are trying to access the same state at the same time, Mm -hmm. then, uh, and change it in different ways, then there might be some sort of conflict. And, you know, one, one mechanism we have for managing that is uh, something called the action and reducer system, which is very similar to um, a similar state management system in React. I guess to answer your question, yes, uh, the developer decides and the developer si- decides amongst a lot of really interesting mechanisms that are unique and different from what developers are used to. Uh, mm-hmm. So we definitely yeah. spend a lot of effort on education around those pieces. Yeah. Can, can I add to that? Because I think the reason you're, you know, you're asking for the right reason, Anna, because it's a different mental model, right? It's like, oh, yeah. well, if the execution is happening over here, so so what then? And, you know, this is one of the things when developers first come to ZK, like there's this sort of mind shift that has to happen in terms of like how you do things. And so we try mm-hmm. to reduce that as much as possible. And, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll talk a bunch about O1JS, but that's why, you know, being able to write, ZK apps in TypeScript, right? It means, okay, at least I'm not having to learn a new language. But in this specific example as well, like uh, Brandon said, you know, there's a actions and reduces framework. So that's something that a lot of web developers are, are familiar with if they've used React. And that's what we try to do with O1JS is like actually provide useful abstractions, right? Not just say, okay, you can build a circuit when the obvious next question sometimes is like, what's a circuit? Like, you know, when people are just starting out, yeah. right? So having these sort of abstractions is super critical. I, I think to ZK as an industry, I think the industry has a has a ways to go, um, but yeah, it's something yeah. that, you know, we definitely uh, spend a lot of time on. And we've even uh, changed most of the references to circuit to, to provable in our tools 
because the term circuit is we believe uh, is is like an unnecessary an unnecessary implementation detail mm. of the thing that you're trying to do, which is to prove something. And it also has a certain mental model when you say it. When you say circuit, like something, right? At least for the layman, but I also think for people who aren't deep in it, right? Like there's an electric circuit, there's like a circuit tree, there's yep. like something, some connotation that it has in, in how you'd interface with it. Yeah. It goes further than that. That's what I have. I have this mental model of a like PCB board, right? Like with lines yeah, yeah. and transistors and Me stuff. Me too. And, you know, <laughs> when you use, when you use some of the lower, lower level ZK languages, like it's kind of not that different. Like it's pretty, like pretty low yeah. level. Yeah. Um, whereas when you're writing ZK apps, like it's more like, you know, Merkle, Merkle tree dot like, you know, add or like, you know, I'll, I'll embarrass myself if I go <laughs> too far in, but it's like, you know, abstractions <laughs> and data structures that most developers are a little more familiar with. Yeah. And and circuits are the implementation detail that is true today. But, you know, maybe someday there's like we're going to change our proof systems to have some other strange way of executing under the hood. How we think about computation at the level of uh, like designing applications shouldn't change. And so coupling ourselves to like the terminology of circuit there is perhaps a mistake. So, I mean, just to paraphrase what we just talked about, but it's the idea that like to interface with this, you will have to think a little bit different on how you design the architecture of an app almost and the things that are possible, how you maybe deploy it or some of the decision making that goes as you do it. You kind of coupled that with ONJS, which we want to talk about, I think we should talk about right after this, which is meant to simplify that language part, which I know a lot of teams have designed their own languages that create kind of that extra learning curve, that extra step. First, you have to learn the language, then you have to potentially learn the new architectures. Yeah. Let's talk about O1JS. That used to also have another name, which we might have mentioned yes. on a previous episode. <laughs> so everything used to have snark or SN at the beginning of it. So a snaps, snarkitecture. I think there was like a snarkosaurus or something at some point. There was a Frankensnark. There's a lot of things that Isaac and I back in the day on previous episodes chatted about. So we just mentioned Snaps has been rebranded to ZK Apps and SnarkyJS has been rebranded to O1JS. But let's talk about what that is. Yeah. Uh, so O1JS, it's a TypeScript library and embedded DSL for writing zero-knowledge enabled smart contracts based on Snarks. There's a fair bit packed in there, but I, I think it covers the main things and I'll maybe just break it down a little. So it's a TypeScript library. And so literally to get started with O1.js and writing ZK apps is npm install O1labs slash O1.js. The embedded DSL part I think is, is kind of important because, you know, like we talked about some, you know, projects require you to learn a new language. And so you're sort of one, have the mental load of a new language and you're taking a bet, I guess, on a project's longevity. We've really gone to great mm -hmm. efforts to stick with TypeScript as the, the language. But I think it's important to acknowledge, like, you still need to call out when you write a zero-knowledge-enabled smart contract, which parts of the, the code are the provable parts, right? Like, which is the mm -hmm. part that, you know, is, is going to represent the state chain on the blockchain. And so there is a DSL for that. But instead of it being some weird and wonderful thing, like Brandon said, it's provable dot, you know, add like, or like, you know, provable dot check or it's, it's very natural sort of TypeScript language. And then, yeah, at the end, what do you, what you get, you get, you get a snark and that's what settles to the blockchain. And I think it's important to call out, there's a lot of dimensions upon which you can categorize different ZK DSLs and programming languages. And I could talk about it for hours. So I'll have to, you know, force myself to, to be concise. Um, but I think one important dimension here that makes O1.js sort of different from a lot of other ZK languages and tools these days is when you're describing a proof with O1.js, you're not describing a program that runs then later in a ZK VM of, you know, either like, mm -hmm. uh, like, like Maiden or, um, or RISC-0's VM or, or any of that. You're actually describing the circuit that's the implementation detail, but you're, you're, you're describing the, the proof. And so you need some DSL features as, as Steve was talking about, but yeah, we've, we've gone to great lengths to 
ensure that it's, well, it's as smooth as possible to, to interact with. And importantly, the DSL being embedded is a big, big thing. I actually don't know what you mean by embedded DSL. Yes. What is that? Let's, let's talk about it. So a DSL is embedded, embedded inside a host language if it is basically represented as a library in that host. So I'll I give see. an example. Uh, React.js, well, that's a, that's a complicated example. jQuery, for those, for those that are familiar. jQuery is this old web framework from like the early 2000s. jQuery is an embedded DSL in JavaScript. So mm. it's a JavaScript library that it feels like a different language, but it's JavaScript. Like it's defined in JavaScript. You're writing JavaScript when you write jQuery. Yeah. Um, and then in contrast, an external DSL or a DSL that is not embedded inside of a host language, for example, is HTML. So when, when you write HTML, like you're in the HTML language, mm -hmm. um, but it's a DSL. It's a domain specific language for describing the content of a web page, uh, mm -hmm. for example. But the issue with external DSLs in general, and in my opinion, always, is that when you're focused on one specific domain, you end up missing important general purpose language features that developers actually need to, to do things, <laughs> to do anything productively. So you end up having loops, conditionals, functions, abstraction, modules, all these things end up being shitty. Mm. Can I say that? <laughs> they, they, end up, they end up being uh, uh, annoying, very, very annoying, very frustrating. As a developer, I can't stand when I'm, when I'm forced to use an external DSL. I, I literally struggle to think of a time in any context, not just ZK, literally in any context where I say to myself, oh, thank God I have this external DSL instead of, <laughs> instead of a DSL embedded in a host language that is general purpose, that, mm -hmm. that can do useful things. So in, in this case, like ONJS is embedded in TypeScript because these days developers like to build applications in, in the web platform. In ONJS, we have function abstraction, we have types, we have structures. You're able to go down to the specific lowest level pieces when you need to optimize something, but you're able to hide that, you know, building up like different kinds of abstractions. But the most important thing about that about the way that we do it in ONJS. And the most important thing that every DSL author should be thinking about when they're deciding <laughs> to, to build these kinds of systems is you want to leverage the knowledge of the developer and the hundreds of millions of, maybe, maybe that's an, uh, an exaggeration, but the hundreds of millions of hours that developers have put into these general purpose tools. Mm. Like God knows how much effort has been put into TypeScript uh, mm -hmm. and JavaScript in, in the ecosystem. And, and why would you throw that out? It's, it's, yeah. it's crazy. It's crazy to me. Everyone who's building a new language from scratch, they not only have to solve their problem of like building this ZK DSL in a, in a way that's usable for developers, like just making them understand ZK. That's already hard. But then they also need to build package managers, abstraction yeah. systems. Build systems. It, it's, build right. systems, package managers. Did I say that? It's, it's, it's just <laughs> inevitable that you'll end up with a system that's more cumbersome to use. So that's, that's my rant. I would just say from a product point of view, it comes like, I agree with everything Brand said. It's that you want to have a great developer experience, which means like, yeah, for us, not learning a new language, right? That you, you can use TypeScript, mm -hmm. that you've got all of your tools set up. Like you, you work in Visual Studio Code, right? So you just want to NPM install, like choose your UI framework, you know, React, Vue.js, right? Like write your ZK app, start calling, you know, um, functions on it. Like that's the experience you want. You don't want the like, yeah, what's this new language and, and how do I design a circuit? And like these things that should be implementation details. That's one thing I love about ONJS, as is the privacy part. You know, I'm sure we'll dive into sort of the magic of ZK, right, is being able to like have, you know, these private inputs and like being able to just declare that when you're writing TypeScript like, I think that's the sort of magical developer experience that's going to actually unlock ZK to the masses because I, you know, I don't think we're there yet. Yeah, I mean, I think that's been like a big topic actually in our community recently. I mean, for a while, but really like recently I'm seeing more and more talks focus on this, more and more kind of thinkers in the space highlighting it, which is where are the use cases? Where are these builds? Where are these, you know, uses for the cool properties that Zero Knowledge offers? Um, yeah. But my rebuttal to that so far has been a little bit, it's so hard to build these things that that level of experimentation could only be theoretic. Like you could imagine use cases, but you couldn't actually like create usable versions of those use cases for a long while. 
before before we go into the use cases, I just want to sort of address one thing that you just said, Anna, about how um, it's been difficult. Like perhaps perhaps it's been difficult to leverage this the features. And I just want to sort of say my take on this. What we see a lot of is like two different, really far away iterations on zk. So there's deep on the proof system side. Like there's all this interesting stuff with proof systems that can do all these wild and crazy things, but they're so hard. It's so hard to actually leverage that because you have to have, you know, a PhD to, mm-hmm. to, to tinker with that stuff. And then on the other side, there are some nice tools that work with ZK VMs, but then the, the VM sucks up all the interesting parts of the proof system and you're left with this interface where you can build the normal application that you can do in any platform. Yeah. So what we're building is this thing in between where we take the, the, the deep, awesome, intense proof system stuff we, we package it up in this context that lets you use it with recursion. And, and we take this important, very important focus on building a usable developer environment, and we put those things together. And so we hope that with these tools, perhaps, we'll, we'll see some really interesting use cases, which Steve is about to go deep into, I think. Cool. Yeah. So, yeah, you were saying, Anna, like, you know, it's this topic of, like, where are the use cases, and especially ones that leverage privacy, um, you know, given that's part of the magic of ZK. And like I, I think about this a lot, and I think it's a good question because I would argue that at the moment, definitely the the majority of like time and capital and coverage that's being deployed in zk isn't leveraging privacy. It's in the verifiable compute part. And so here yeah. I'm thinking, you know, zk rollups basically scaling execution, especially on Ethereum, but increasingly other types of execution as well. And even we see this at O1 Labs, like we're working, you know, with Optimism to provide zero knowledge proofs of their fault proof program, right? So even even us, the sort of like ZK OGs who, you know, are all into the privacy aspects as well, like it's irrefutable, I think, that just the verifiable compute aspect of ZK mm-hmm. is, is powerful on its own, even without mm-hmm. privacy. Um, but with privacy, it it's sort of then it feels like it should go from compelling and important to to magical. So so where is it? And I think I, this is where I agree with Brandon. Some of it is just that the developer experience has been so difficult to like yeah. architect an application that you know really maintains privacy. And again, one good thing, O1JS, <laughs> uh, and you know the the private execution environment we're talking about. But I I am you know I spend all day on use cases right and I I, I see them coming now and like I'll share a couple if you if you sure. want to hear um, yes so one team I've worked with a lot is Snickerdoodle and they're a Web three Web three advertising platform and it's funny because you'd think what like advertising no that's so Web two but it's advertising in the Web three way which is that you can consent to being advertised to and you can consent to sharing some details about yourself and so that could mm. be something like my wallet regularly trades DeFi or I um, have owned Ethereum since 2015, right? And those are attributes that a Web3 advertiser would really want to know. But instead of, you know, giving up your email address, your phone number or being tracked all over the web, you just provide a zero knowledge proof of those things and the advertiser can verify like, okay, I have cryptographic proof that, you know, this wallet has these attributes and that's valuable enough to me to advertise to and maybe even share rewards with. But it's put into a sort of pool that means that I'm not individually trackable, right? Mm-hmm. So it's this sort of beautiful symbiotic relationship of like I will share some amount of data that is um, useful to an advertiser to get like something in return, but I don't get tracked all over the internet. And so this is actually the privacy part, right? And I, mm-hmm. I love that one. That's cool. Although I don't really understand how you mm-hmm. advertise to an address. <laughs> yeah. You um, can airdrop the address yeah. i guess but like so so the team yeah that that team they're still working out what the uh what the best like rewards sort of models are like you know is it that okay if you share a certain amount of data like you get sort of digital rewards or i think that that part there's still some work to do but it's it's cool and it's yeah actually privacy with the sort of verification aspects I'll give you another one. Um, I just sure. like, learned about this one the other day. I can be a bit skeptical of, of grand claims with use cases sometimes. And I'm while I'm watching ZK ML space with a lot of interest, like the sort of, you know, that we will prove every inference or we'll prove every training data of like the largest models. Yeah, like not, not so into that. But there is a, a team that's in the ZK Ignite program, which is Mina's like builder program called Biosnark. And they do drug development. 
right? And this is one of those ones where it's specific enough to be useful, but like really good fit for the technology, which is when you build like a, a drug, you want to prove that with some sort of input, this molecular structure that you've developed has some attribute at the end. And that's, you know, mm. like w- whatever, whether it's defending against something, attacking something, like whatever it else. But you could have spent hundreds of millions of dollars to develop that model. And so if you're trying to sell it to a big drug company, what do you do? Do you just hand it over and hope they don't take it? Do you give it to a broker? And and these things exist, but there are data brokers, there are platforms, but it's ad hoc, it's expensive, it's risky. And so this team have built us, like they call it a scoring function to be able to represent this molecular structure in zero knowledge to prove that when a given input comes in, you get some output that gives Mm. you confidence it can have this desired effect. Cool. Yeah. So they're coming. I just want to say that like the privacy use cases are coming. I mean, that one's very, very, very like domain specific, but I think the concept that it's outlining, just the proving something under the hood. I mean, we've heard that about like code. We've heard, you know, that's like one of the use cases we've heard a lot about being able to prove that something's happening in a private environment correctly. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. I I love domain specific ones. I think those are the ones where like the technology gets its foothold, right? And then people start to like latch onto that and be like, oh, how can I apply that to my industry? Right. Rather than the other way around where it's this Everything can be private. Everything can be verifiable. It's like, oh, what do I do with that? (laughs) Solutions without a problem. That Mm -hmm. felt a little bit like, or tools without a place to use them. Like, look at this cool thing. It does this. I think this is where we're at right now as an industry, right? We're just getting Mm -hmm. into that moment where we can start to like apply these things to real world things, to real world cases. I think in the past it was like you said, Brendan, and actually Steve, just the fact that it was so hard to build anything, Mm. like the product people tended to be the applied cryptographers who are not necessarily thinking about products as much as they're thinking about implementing efficiently. And yet they were the ones coming up with products because they were the only ones who could really use the tools. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like right now, as we speak, I think the door is kind of opening to a lot more product folks like yourself, Steve, actually. Like to get in and start thinking about this stuff. (laughs) Yeah. And like an example with that snickerdoodle one, part of that system is like besides what I described, there's also like making sure you don't get double counting, which is a common thing in ZK. You want to prove Mm -hmm. that you haven't already, because you don't know who like the individual is providing the data. You need to make sure that you're not getting double submissions, like a bot, for example, clicking on a web page, right? So one of the things they had to do was like a, they call it a nullifier, but it was basically like checking something exists in a, in a Merkle tree. Let's just say that. And they tried a couple of different frameworks to implement that. And it was sort of 30 to a hundred lines in the other frameworks, three lines, you know, on JS, because it's literally, there's the right data structure and you just, you're just checking. And so, yeah, when, when that's the developer experience of like, you know, working with abstract data types, just writing code versus designing circuits by hand that, you know, hundreds of lines. That's why I think these use cases are starting to emerge now. So I want to bring it back to O1.js and ZK apps and like the ZK apps platform. Where are we at with that? Can people already use it? I know that there's been a lot of test nets. I sort of want to understand the state of both of those things. And is there anything left to build? Yeah, great question. I'll start. So O1.js is in production today. You can NPM install, start building applications that, you know, generate zero-knowledge proofs in the browser. Uh, You can even build production, like, off-chain applications where, you know, apps interact peer-to-peer, verifying proofs. Um, So usable today. That's the first one. For ZK apps, yeah, that relies on the next hard fork of the meter protocol should the community uh, vote for it, which... We're very confident they will. They're certainly excited about it. Yeah, you asked about testnets. So there's been multiple testnets running uh, for over two years now, right, Brandon? Is that over yes. two years testnet for yes. ZK apps? Yeah. But what's just changed and what's exciting is, yeah, the incentivized testnet has just kicked off. So we have okay. a bunch of, you know, ecosystem partners, running validators, like running tools, sort of load testing, performance testing, trying to break it. Right. Like this is the sort of candidate release for the ZK apps release of the MENA protocol. So yeah, it's a it's a it's a good time to be Exciting. to be talking about it. Yeah. The reason I actually ask this is yeah. I think last time when I talked to Izzy about this, it was two years ago. And on that show, he was like, It's coming, it's coming really soon. 
And then when I was listening to that, I was like, wait, what came? But it sounds like the test nets did come. It's just you stayed in sort of test net phase for a pretty long time. Can you say why? Yeah, I think it's safe to say we underestimated the the effort it would take to stabilize such such a large change. Um, I, I think it has been very hard for us to estimate how long uh, large pieces of work like this in the ZK space take. Mm. But yes, we did we did get our test net out. We we had a lot of bugs. We fixed a lot of bugs. We 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 believe we have something very stable, much more stable than when we did the incentivized testnet for Mina mainnet. We're in a much okay. better place, like comparatively. Nice. But yeah, you know, as things go in this space, it took a little longer than we expected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think too, but, like it's it's clearly an industry thing, right? Like most ZK platforms have sort of taken longer than they inspect. And, you know, the, the reality is too, even in those two years, Anna, like the amount of economic value that blockchains secure, all blockchains has increased a lot. And so the... Mm-hmm the sort of level of internal scrutiny, external scrutiny, like the level of confidence, like I think required just goes goes up and up. So I, I'm definitely For glad sure. the team took the time that they did. I don't think anyone's annoyed that you're not YOLOing into ZK apps. <laughs> I think it's really good if they're good, if the platform is stable. I do feel like you've had a bit of a head start because you were sort of deploying this stuff quite early. You had people already building on it earlier than anyone else. At the same time, there are some other teams coming out with stuff. So do you see a mainnet? I don't even know if I should ask, but do you see a mainnet in the next few months? Or do you think it's going to remain in sort of this testnet land for a little longer? It's almost like how should people approach it? Should they think about it like this is a great playground? Or should they be like, this is where I could build my company? This is where I should, could build my company. It's coming in hot. Like the, the incentivized test network, you know, is the last testnet before the community will vote on hard forking in ZK apps. Like, yeah, as we discussed, you talked two years ago about when the date is. So like, yeah, is it, you know, this month or that month? It's hard to get down to the month. But if, if you had asked me the question in the next few months, yes, like it's coming. Cool. Okay. Well, this is very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like in the ZK space, there's a lot of very interesting new architecture ideas or like almost ways that ZK will enable like new environments to lock into other environments. Mm -hmm. I know in the past you've done work on bridging. Brendan, I know you and I have had a chat about like DA and Mm -hmm. you know how Mina has it or not, like how it's kind of understood in the Mina context. There's like an increasing group of teams that are like looking at this co-processor role and I do wonder, how does Mina fit into that world? So I, I first heard about ZK processes on this show, Anna. Uh, I think it was Axiom oh, describing cool. like their ability to provide proofs of historical Ethereum data, you know, for, for applications, which I thought was cool. Um, but I thought what even was cooler was the yeah the introduction of this term, the ZK coprocessor, and. Um, that got me thinking, and um, while it's cool, it's extremely limiting. If you think about what coprocessor like meant historically, right? It's offloading execution from a CPU to some other chip, like so a million years mm-hmm. ago, like an ALU, something optimized for for arithmetic circuits. And you know that was a huge step change in CPU design to be able to like offload these things. And now we see it in GPUs, etc. And so I think calling a coprocessor like something that proves historical data is, is kind of limiting. Whereas in the MENA context, right, we've just made, in the O1JS context, we've just made every browser in the world a ZK coprocessor because the, now the computing power of every device is available to generate these proofs and it's those proofs that they're going to settle to MENA. So if you think about MENA as the global computer, then every single browser in the world out there is a ZK processor. And that's cool. Oh, wow. So when I think about sort of interesting ZK architecture concepts that maybe haven't been explored enough, especially when applied to Mina, I really just keep going back to recursion. Recursion's at the heart of everything. So I guess like we did talk about a, a few specific interesting use cases. I think like more generally, all these use case categories that people talk about with ZK, like identity voting, games, ZKML even, like identity, you know, when you add recursion, you can compose attestations together. With mm-hmm. voting, when you add recursion, you get interesting forms of scaling. With gaming, when you add recursion, you get multiplayer, peer-to-peer, 
trustless communication with sort of anti-cheat filters built in. With ZKML, when you add recursion, you get incremental updating of data sets if you lay out your data in recursive proof trees. I'm just so excited to see you know, what, what people do with recursion. So I think we've reached basically the end of the episode, but I do think we're in this, and we've already said it a little bit before, but I think we're in this really interesting moment where these new platforms are going to come online. There's going to be more developers actually able to experiment. If people are interested today, what do they do? How do they get involved? Yeah. And is there anything maybe you want to tell folks who might be like just on the cusp of jumping in, but like are still kind of nervous? Yeah, I, I start with the code. Google O1JS, npm install, get started. Uh, there's lots of docs, lots of examples. Uh, super active and super supportive Discord community. There's Q&A, there's you know, folks just hanging out. You know, you can run ideas by. Um, there's folks from both Owen Labs there. There's folks from the Mina Foundation there. And yeah, like if you've been intimidated maybe by the technology, right? And this idea of like, what on earth is ZK and like, how do I write a circuit? But the concept of like decentralized apps with privacy that you can build using TypeScript and all the libraries you know, all the tooling you know in Visual Studio Code, like, yeah, install and, and, and get building. Nice. And, you know, there, there are also programs run by, by Mina Foundation to sort of help developers get started and, and to give some, some structured grant programs and, and things like this. There's, there's ZK Ignite, which is a builder program that runs in, in cohorts where members of the community vote on projects uh, to get funding. So you can work through that. There's a new Mina Navigators program where you can work on sort of larger projects and, and get perpetual funding through that as well. And, and I'm sure there's others. And actually, there's more and more hackathons focused on ZK. Yes. I might be doing some of those as well. So hopefully we'll be seeing Over One Labs and the MENA team over there uh, for those future events. Absolutely. So thank you to both of you for coming on the show and sharing with us all of this info and the updates about ZK apps and O1JS and kind of where the project's at. Yeah, thanks so much. No, thanks for having us, Anna. Big fan of the show. So really enjoyed uh, jumping on. Cool. Yeah, thank you so much. I want to say a big thank you to the podcast team, Henrik, Rachel, and Tanya, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.